This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art, because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. This is Season 4, Episode 9, and we're going to talk about the state, refugees, and immigration. This is going to be more of an ethics episode than it is a technology or art or religion episode, although as you know, dear listeners, our ethics episodes end up as religion episodes eventually. Because we're Christians, and it'd be really weird if they didn't. That's true. <laughs> having having a separate ethics from your religion is... Probably not a good plan. Probably not a good plan, but also just kind of difficult. Like, it would, yeah. be, it would be difficult. So that's where we're going with this episode. And as you might well guess, we're going to start off with the European refugee crisis... But we will be expanding to more broader topics and then uh, turning our gaze inward a little bit. The EU refugee crisis is going on, continues to go on, and will go on for probably a very long time. It consists essentially of Syrians fleeing Syria, which is war-torn and shows no sign of being less war-torn in the near future, but also includes refugees from Africa particularly famine-ridden areas as well as war-torn areas, um, and some refugees from further abroad in various reasons. So this is not a homogenous group of refugees that we're talking about. However, many of them are stuck in Greece because Greece is the easiest way to enter the European continent at this particular juncture. The reasoning for that is a very different episode, but that is the situation as it stands. <laughs> Turkey is mostly in Asia, but wants to be in Europe and wants to be part of the EU. So Turkey is incentivized to work with the EU whenever it can. The EU doesn't want to have these particular refugees trapped in Greece indefinitely. And so recently, the EU and Turkey have reached a proposal. It's not even an agreement yet, but a proposal that is colloquially being called one in, one out, which is for every refugee in Greece that is resettled to Europe, one will be resettled to Turkey. This is part of an ongoing negotiation, and by the time you read this, the plan might be completely different. This is an ever-changing, updating process. But at the moment, that's where we stand. The one-in, one-out has just been proposed, and Chris and I, looking at uh, the uses of the state and the ethics of globalization thought that this would be a really appropriate thing to tackle. Right. And this is something that has been coming up, not just in Turkey and the EU, but as we'll get to in a while, has been a very hot topic in the Americas this year. Immigration in general is a point of considerable discussion, not only in the US, but also in Europe, because immigration factors into many other parts of our culture, right. it concerns about economic change, concerns about demographic change, etc. And those concerns are often conflated together. But one of the things we want to note from the get-go is that while they overlap and while there is reason to think that they do have significant impact on each other, the immigration debate and the discussion of how you handle refugees are not the same debate. And that's an important distinction to be made because too often, especially in American politics, we can say, but we have seen, even in our fairly distant and removed ability to read European politics, the two get conflated. And so 
many commentators playing off of nativist fears, playing off of ethnic fears, playing off of religious fears. Or demographic fears, or economic fears, or just fears fears. Whether justified or no, have conflated together issues that deserve to be treated forthrightly and honestly and carefully. Again, dealing with whether those fears may or may not be justified, but should be treated distinctly as well, because the cause of families fleeing from a war-torn area trying to find a place where they can live and not be afraid of being gassed or bombed or shot is quite different, comparable in certain ways, but meaningfully quite different from someone crossing a border legally or illegally for the sake of better job prospects. The latter may or may not be legitimate, the latter may or may not be what you want for your country, but it is very, very different from people literally fleeing for the safety of their lives. And so, as we come into this, we're not touching the broader immigration issue. That's an interesting topic. It is one that we might eventually tackle if we get particularly daring in our ethics and politics discussions. What, what? But for today, we want to look at very specifically the question of refugees, whether that is specifically these refugees who are currently in Greece, or whether it's more broadly people fleeing from sustained violence in Central America and how we've treated them here in the United States and so on, and how this fits into the broader backdrop of everything we've talked about this season in terms of globalization and nation states and what we might think of as neighborly ethics mm -hmm. in the context of this global world. Mm -hmm. Global world is a silly phrase, but right. there you have it. And there's a caveat to the caveat that people seeking immigration often aren't enmeshed in wars, but they often are fleeing internal violence. So Mexico is not in danger of wars, but some people fleeing Mexico are fleeing drug violence. So yeah. There's a squishy, messy overlap to these general categories, but the policies that are levied against the idea of immigration and the idea of refugees often are, and we argue should be, very, very different. So All right. there's going to be some overlap. There's going to be some ability for people to say, but, and we acknowledge that. However, in our winning slowly world, we would treat refugees and visa-seeking immigrants differently. So, in particular, one of the problems that we have with this one-in-one-out plan is that it seems to have many holes in it. Now, there's, <laughs> it's a proposal. It's not a total agreement. It's not even necessarily a working plan, but it doesn't necessarily have all the elements that you would need to actually put something into place, i.e., who would be doing the one-in-one-outing? Like, who would be making those decisions? How would this be enforced? What if somebody says that they're just not going to leave and they are not going to be resettled to Turkey? What happens then? That's not addressed. What happens if Turkey gets people and they don't want people? What happens if there's local resistance? Are you still going to settle people there even though they may not be any safer there? than they were in Greece or other places. There's a lot of questions surrounding this and surrounding the idea right. of safety. And there's this whole parallel but separate argument about a safe city in Syria, which we're not going to touch. There's a lot of questions and variables. 
And in some way, you have to have those when you start an agreement and a proposal. But in other ways, if you have so many of those at the beginning, you almost ensure that a plan won't happen. Right. And and there's reason to wonder, does someone want their plan not to happen? Because there are factions, it is fair to say, with differing opinions about refugee resettlement. One of the things that has become very clear in the wake of especially the Paris attack several months ago is that many people don't want any Muslim refugees in Europe, regardless of what numeric risk levels are, regardless of what the actual situation on the ground is for these people who are the vast majority of them completely unmalicious and just trying to survive, a natural, albeit we think misplaced, fear of all Muslim immigrants has taken hold in large parts of Europe as well as, frankly, large parts of America mm -hmm. and led to substantial ongoing resistance to the notion of resettlement of any of these refugees across Europe or America. And that's really unfortunate. We think that statistically... Yeah. It's highly unlikely that people who are coming through these, what are attempting to be legal channels, right. would be applying if they knew that they were going to be checked out. And now we can question what the background checks would be. We can question the viability of that happening. But essentially, if someone's going to try to go through a legal process to get into a state, it doesn't make sense especially since there are other illegal ways to get into states. And other legal ways to get into states. Yeah, that are a lot easier and that are a lot more efficient in terms of actually getting places. Yeah. there It just doesn't seem highly likely that this would be the way you would go about things. Now, the problem with terrorism is always that if there's one outlier that happens, then the whole house of cards seems to be tenuous and perhaps falling down. And that's, right. that's a natural fear response, and we think it's misguided, but we get that. Right. And it is worth note, of course, that that is precisely the point of terrorism. Right. Terrorism is carried out the way it is precisely to engender that kind of fear. Right. And so one of the reasons we take the stance we do and we have the view we do about how we should respond to refugee crises precipitated by mass terrorism is in no small part motivated by our recognition that as we see things, to do otherwise is precisely to let the terrorists get what they want, right. to force the hands of large governments and of large groups of people to respond to that calculated striking of fear, rather than to let our better impulses of love of neighbor and charity toward others and care for foreigners mm -hmm. win out the day. Right. Granted that that's hard and complicated and messy, but we still want that to be the outcome. So we're willing to say whatever argument people can make about the potential for one terrorist getting in, as a winning slowly venture and as an ethical structure towards the charity that we want to give to everyone, we're willing to take that risk. That's a, a risk that is important to have so that you don't lose the other elements, namely yeah. – so that you don't let thousands of immigrants sit on islands in Greece or at the border of Greece in increasingly squalid shantytowns. And so right. when we're thinking about the quote-unquote idea of security versus the idea of open borders, 
open being in quotation marks as well, <laughs> winning slowly is going to tend towards open borders because right. one, we can only deal with the situation that we actually have in front of us. So all of the hype. We're optimists, but we're realists. Right. So <laughs> we're idealistic realists. We're idealistic realists. You kind of have to be an idealistic realist to be an ethicist of any sort, whether armchair or <laughs> professional. So, but you can only deal with the situation at hand and hypotheticals being induced in larger and larger numbers tend to decrease the actual ability to get anything done in these specific types of situations that are right. very, very large, very complex situations. So stripping out some of the right. hypotheticals is important to actually getting anything done. Again, there are going to be people that completely disagree on that point, that <laughs> you should have as many hypotheticals as possible. But that's not what we think we should do here, is that you should strip out the hypotheticals, look at the situation on the ground, and that you should adjust the policies depending on who's actually there and what they're actually doing, what their requests and concerns are. Now, if every single immigrant wants to get to Germany, then there is a significant problem there. <laughs> Germany probably doesn't have the capacity to handle that. Exactly. And so that would be something where you would have to adjust for something that's on the ground. Yeah. A second thing that we have to consider is that we live in America. What? We do? <laughs> we live in America. I know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know. It's weird. After last week, I thought we might live in Singapore or I something. Know. Yeah, we could live anywhere. I live in a balloon above the Atlantic Ocean. I still, I still get Wi-Fi. <laughs> Is it from Facebook or Google? No, I just tap it straight out of the T1 line. <laughs> <laughs> Hovering above the Atlantic. <laughs> uh, Mommy, what's that cord doing? Uh, just ignore it, honey. <laughs> Uh, anyway, but, but yeah, we live in America live and in so America. it's easy for us to look and point and say, come on, European Union, Greece, Turkey, get this sorted out in a way that actually addresses the problems on the ground and takes into account the particulars and says, here's how we're actually going to address those problems. But we don't live there. And it's actually kind of hard to deal with the problems over there when we don't live there. They have different concerns. Yep. They have different local needs and local problems. There are some places that just genuinely can't handle right. the amount of people that are trying to get into small hamlets. This is a totally real problem, some of which isn't based in xenophobic uh -uh. racism and is just logistical. Right. Or any other number of things that we can't know because we only have what... I've started to see people call the narrative. <laughs> and so one of the things that we want to say to people in America, particularly who aren't directly involved in this crisis. Now, if you have a sphere of influence in which you are dealing with exactly this and you actually have a connection, then by all means, ignore this next statement. But <laughs> to people who don't have a sphere of influence uh, connected to this crisis, who are just on the outside looking in, we need to chill out. The, the thing that's going on over there is that they actually seem to be trying to do something to fix problems that yep. they're having over there. So us saying that they should be doing different things, while may being very well-intentioned, is not necessarily going to be uptaken into the uh, EU's thought process because <laughs> we're not part of the EU. Right. Now, 
petitions that are part of the UN or that, again, are part of this sphere of influence because as part of a UN nation, we do have some amount of say in what the EU is doing with these people, especially if they start to involve the UN, et cetera, et cetera. Spheres of influence matter. And so there's a big, big step that we want to take here at Winning Slowly and say they, they aren't ignoring it. Yep. And they have a lot more knowledge of what it looks like on the ground than we do. And they are more invested in the success of their country than we are. Right. Um, but there is an element where, as idealist realists, we would like <laughs> them to include refugees as part of the functioning of the country. But we can't really push hard on that. Right. To, to take it back around to something we opened the season with, when trying to think about how to help people elsewhere, yeah. one of the things we continually have to bear in mind is that the people nearest to the problem are usually the best equipped to work on it. And this actually has much broader implications for how we think about governance in general. It would be mm -hmm. interesting sometime to talk about the value of effective local politics. And that's something we've touched on even in previous seasons. But the, mm -hmm. the reason for that is that the people who are directly impacted by things and who are directly engaged with the problem are usually the best equipped to see what the specific needs are. Now, of course, when you're dealing with tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of refugees coming to an entire continent, Obviously, the, the question of what is local changes. You're not talking one city. You're not talking even one country. Mm -hmm. But you might be talking one continent, and keeping right. that in mind is important. And yeah. where it starts to get fuzzy, of course, is that there are plenty of refugees who would like to come here, and one of the EU's proposed solutions for some of this, via the UN and other means, is for some of those refugees to come be settled in the United States. 10,000 here and 20,000 there and so on. And for many reasons, including land mass and economics, there are actually good reasons to think that that's a very good solution to many of mm -hmm. these problems. Because, mm -hmm. well, if you look at a map, America is a lot bigger than Europe, just geographically. Mm -hmm. And we're much less densely populated, even in our more densely populated areas than Europe is. And so, at least theoretically, we have the potential to absorb more immigrants in general, and therefore refugees in specific, than Europe right. might. Which is, again, a sphere of influence thing. That's yep. a direct way that the United States could say, hey, we're going to help out. Now, there have been potential ideas, potential proposals, plans put on the table that have been knocked about in various ways um, because of terrorism because of statistically small problems that have yep. an outsized influence on fear and these sorts of things. There's also the not insignificant problem that the most densely populated areas already are the places that would be most friendly towards these particular types of immigrants. Yep. And that is not a small problem in and of itself. But I think that's the sort of conversation that we as Americans have to be having about the EU refugee crisis as opposed to trying to dictate what the EU is trying to do. <laughs> and usually in terms that burden us least, of course. Right, right. Um, and so, and again, there are plenty of people who are activists who are 
actively working towards this happening and we are not talking about you so good job keep it up keep it up fight that good fight but for people who are armchairing it uh like us but worse (laughs) like us but worse um we we would like to turn the conversation inward and even if we don't push it into the eu zone we have other refugee problems of our own that are just sitting there that we could deal with on our own and so we could potentially take the beam out of our own eye before casting stones so <laughs> to mix a couple metaphors from hey, the bible <laughs> that's that's not technically mixing them in that i mean they they kind of fall one <laughs> after another like if you take the beam out of your own eye well technically you shouldn't cast stones anyway but <laughs> okay i'm mixing the metaphors i'm mixing the metaphors we'll forgive you but yeah. that that point you bring up, I think, is exceptionally important. We have large numbers of legitimate refugees coming to the United States, largely undiscussed because they're not Muslim, who are in need of care. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, in large measure, we've dumped them in camps in places like Florida and then proceeded to ignore them. Well, in Texas... Yeah, we'll link a number of things about this in the episode, and there are things that you should look into seeing if you can help with in general, but particularly if you're a listener who's geographically proximate to some of these camps and and things like that, or your state is involved in a more general sense with resettlement or temporary settlement or whatnot, we would strongly encourage you to look into it, because we've got really pretty squalid camps of our own filled in many cases with women and children who are just waiting to be redeported to their country because our policy on dealing with people who are legitimately fleeing violence who have come here to hopefully stay alive rather than to stay in their home country where mm-hmm. again as Stephen mentioned much earlier in the episode they're legitimately worried that they're going to be killed in massive drug violence or in what is not actual but functional civil war between different aspects of the the society because of those drug wars. Mm -hmm. And of course, one salient point to remember here is that we have secondary but substantial effects on those matters of policy, on those situations by our own policy decisions. How we conduct, how we think about, how we frame the war on drugs, how we go about handling legal issues around that can substantially hurt or help people in those countries. And I would say, without getting into the specific details, that one of our responsibilities in thinking about how to deal with refugees is thinking about the question of whether we can address some of the root causes. We want, on the first order response, to help people in need, period, Mm -hmm. full stop, Mm -hmm. to say what is the most effective way we can help in the short term. Give people blankets, give people food, give people cover from the elements, make sure that they're taken care of, that they're not living in their own waste, and so on. Take care of those first-order needs. But then secondarily, and this is harder, much harder, but it is in some ways as or more important, Mm -hmm. ask, are there ways that we can undercut the root problems? Are there ways that we can change the situation on the ground that produces them? Now, that's pretty hard in Syria. A whole bunch of governments have been trying for the last five years to sort that out. And because of things we talked about two weeks ago in our statism episode, that's complicated. What up, Russia? Thanks, Russia. It's difficult. (laughs) And so on. But closer to home... We can ask, 
do we need to change the way we fight? Do we need to change the, the legal stances we have toward drugs? Do we need to change all of these things in part because of problems at home, like our massive criminalization and incarceration problems, but also because of the disproportionate impact it's having on other nations and other economies and other entire peoples. Yeah. And so I think that there's an element there where somebody listening could go like, whoa, whoa, I am I am not involved in the whole war on drugs thing. Like, that is, <laughs> that is not my game. Like, I, I don't know. And if you have that recoil with issues that are in your backyard, if you have people in your state or if it's just in your country and you have issues saying, whoa, that's not my game, that should be the response that you have also towards the EU of, whoa, I, that's I don't even That's definitely live in not my game. That's definitely not my game, which isn't to say that we have to not care about these things because right. we should Quite care. Quite the opposite. We should care. And if we find a sphere of influence that connects, then we should care very much. But if you don't have a sphere of influence connection and you're not willing to go and get one, then there are things much closer to home that are the same sorts of problems in different scales and different degrees, but that we need to address. And yeah. so that's where we're going to end is that the refugee crisis in Europe is tough. It's complex. It's difficult. It has a lot of things that make us recoil in it. Yeah. But it's also being handled yep. poorly <laughs> in some ways, piecemeal in other ways. Occasionally well. Occasionally well. But it's, they're handling it. They're trying. Yeah. It keeps coming and up. And to riff on something John O'Nolan said last week about businesses, I think it's worth remembering that even when we look at people with whom we disagree fairly radically about what the right answer is, people are in general trying to do what they think is best for the most people. There are racists. There are hardline nativists who just don't want anyone else to come to their countries ever. But in many cases, what is needed is a clearer conversation about the risks and the right things to do that isn't about shaming people and isn't about saying that anyone who disagrees with you is an idiot, but rather saying, look, Turkey and Greece and the EU are trying. Yeah. Let's, let's encourage them to keep trying. America yep. is trying. Let's encourage America to keep trying, and let's continue advocating for better and clearer and more ethical and more loving ways to resolve these things. But let's mm -hmm. also not be complete jerks about it and assume that anyone who disagrees with us is just a horrible person, because usually that's not it. The music at the beginning of the episode was Come Down by Water District. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. Thanks again to Andrew Fallows and Jeremy W. Sherman for their continued sponsorship of the show. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can pledge monthly at patreon.com slash winning solely or give a one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning Cha-ching! Cha-ching! 10% of whatever you give us, we give to the Internet Archive so that we can have a library of the Internet, because that's a good thing. It is. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. Recommend us in your favorite podcast app directory or just tell a friend. You can find show notes for this episode with links to the things we talked about and to the music at winningslowly.org slash 4.09.
Last but not least, we love hearing from you. Send us your thoughts on Twitter at Winning Slowly on our Facebook page or via email at hello at winningslowly.org. Since we generally tell people to read charitably, we also read our mail slash comments slash angry missives charitably. True that. And we would love to hear from you if you have thoughts on the things we talk about, perhaps especially on weeks like this where it's a hard and tangled issue. As always, thanks for listening. Either literally, if you live in Texas or Florida, or metaphorically, if you live in America, that should be a similar response. Did you response just say that you... Texas and Florida are America's backyard? Uh, so, uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, technically, I meant like if you live in Texas, like you literally have them in your backyard, um, which is still a metaphor and not really literally, unless people are at uh, the literally, the literally. You literally failed me. on using literally correctly. I know, I know.